everyone, Lee here in this intro, just wanting to wish you a happy new year and to just give you all a little bit of context about this episode. This episode was originally uh, recorded in the very beginning of November and meant to come out in the middle of November, but I found out that same weekend that we were recording that I needed to move, so I have spent the last month and a half going through a big move to a new apartment, so I apologize for the lateness of this episode, and that's also why you'll hear us in the beginning talking about daylight savings time and a lot of things that uh, no longer super are relevant to the time that this episode is coming out. A few things to look forward to in the new year. We are finally going forward with our revamp of the Patreon, so keep an eye out for that. We will be having a whole bunch of really wonderful new perks and new tiers. We're going to have a Discord server that folks can join and talk about fun stuff all the time. So please keep an eye out for that. If you haven't already become a Patreon supporter, I really encourage you to do so. Um, one of the things that I put out online before this episode came out was that I moved into or I was trying to move into a new apartment that is much more expensive, unfortunately, than where I was living before. And so I am really grateful to every single person who is contributing, whether by individual donations or by Patreon or by buying things in the store. You really are making it just a little bit more possible for me to treat this show and essentially a uh, second job as a uh, source of some extra income. And I have never in the past uh, paid myself for this show, so I'm going to start actually doing that. All of the money previously had been just saved towards things like going to conventions and doing speaking engagements. And with COVID, that hasn't really been happening. So um, I just wanted to pop in here before the episode starts to thank you all for your support. Wish you a happy new year. Give you a little bit of information about why this episode took so long. And to let you know that new exciting things are coming. Hello and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. <laughs> I'm Lee, as usual, your host for this episode and all of our episodes. Happy almost end of 2021, which is bananas to think about. 2020 lasted approximately six years and 2021 has gone by in three weeks. So um, <laughs> it's it's been a time. I hope that you are adjusting to the world going dark at 4 p.m. if you are in a place that is dealing with daylight savings time here. Today's episode is going to be the first part of a two-parter where we're going to be talking about some really cool folks 
groups of people. And I have two amazing guest hosts for this episode. We get two for the price of one for <laughs> this episode. You can hear one of them laughing in the background. So I would like to introduce you to my two guest hosts for this episode who are both performers, writers, queer nerds, and each have an extensive background in musical theater and have been working together on a couple of really wonderful musical theater projects. And one of which is how we came to know one another. And if you know me, I will find any excuse in any part of my life to interject Xena. This is a full-length musical called Xena Warrior Musical, The Lost Scroll. So I would really love to have everybody say hi to S.C. Lucier and Megan Rose. Hello, y'all. Hi, Lee. Hello. Hi. Hello. I've always wanted to be part of a BOGO, and now I am. Yeah. <laughs> I'm put a sticker on your head. Adorable. There you go. Sweet. Yes. Oh, thank you. I feel like a payless shoe. It's really lovely. It's your your dream goal in life. Become oh, a payless so shoe. Good. <laughs> so I just want to become a shoe. Is that too much to ask? All right. Thank you both for coming on and hanging out and talking with me. Like I said, this is the first part in a two-parter episode where we're going to be talking about Amazons. I couldn't think of, you know, two better people to talk about Amazons than the two of you who are writing, you know, entire musicals about them. So we're going to discuss the history of gender norm and gender role transgressing women warriors in antiquity and also beyond in our next episode. We're going to look at the mythology and real life basis for Amazons and other female warriors and heroes in ancient Greek tradition in this episode. And then the next episode, we're going to examine some other women warriors who kind of queered expectations. Before we get into all of that, I talked a little bit about the two of you, but I would really love for you both to kind of give the listeners a little bit of primer about who you both are, where you come from in your own introduction to these stories and this research in Amazons and how you know each other, how we got together and tell us all about yourselves. Cool. This is inside the actor's studio. Tell me all about yourselves. <laughs> I love it. All right. My name is Megan Rose and I'm a composer. I play a lot of instruments. I love music. Started playing piano when I was four, learned the guitar when I was 16, picked up the bass when I was 22, and now I write musicals. I've always loved Broadway and musical theater, and I've always loved music, and I was trying to figure out songs on the radio instead of playing classical music because I took private piano lessons and was doing competitions, and I was like, you know, I love music so much, but my heart was really in trying to figure out songs and how to write them. My heart was in rock and roll, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's that's what it comes that's, down that's to. That's what moved me from cello to, to guitar, too. I was like, I really like this, but also. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I say when I learn different instruments, it's not that big of a deal. It's just that I've loved them for such a long time. And I always wanted to be in a band and finally was in college. And then I was in all these bands and I started writing musicals. I was a music director for an improv troupe. And a few of my pieces went to the Fringe Festival when that was still a thing in New York City. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. That's that's why I'm saying they got accepted to the Fringe Festival. Always loved New York, but when we went to the Fringe Festival, I really fell in love with it and was like, I need to move here, and this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to do music, and I'm going to write shows. Nice. From there, got a little more sophisticated, wrote a show called Held, which also got into the New York Musicals Festival, which was just a little notch above Fringe. But yeah, when I moved here, I needed to find a director, and I put out an advertisement for a director, and interviewed a bunch of people and Luce was 
top of the list for me. And then we started working together and she directed my show. And yeah, then we started working together ever since that. Nice. And then Lu- I, loose I loose walked into your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she, she rode in on a... On a horse. <laughs> I did. I can't believe it. Oh, so thematic that. for this episode. Yeah, that's how we met. So I'm Essie Lucier. Uh, most people call me Luce. I have a background in theater directing. That's my undergraduate degree. I worked in immersive theater and off-Broadway work, did a lot of innovative storytelling technique development, did a lot of dance. I mean, all over the place. I can't even... I When I list my background, I honestly sound insane. It's very difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult. It's not a linear path, you know? Like, Meg, that was such a lovely journey from point A to point B. Thank you. Didn't feel that way. <laughs> I, it just sounds insane. And then I went to graduate school for museology and queer history. And now I, I'm the first staff member at the forthcoming American LGBTQ plus museum. So Lee and awesome. I are our friends. <laughs> We're cousins across the co- yeah. continent. Yeah, it's so interesting. <laughs> like we've we've we learned about each other because of Xena Warrior Musical. It was going to be originally debuting at Zenite Retreat pre COVID. Yes. And, you know, we started talking, we started chatting, found out that you and I are in the same, you know, field of work and that yes. we have a lot of the same connections and a lot of the same colleagues and just kind of became inevitable that we would do an episode together. I'm really excited to have the both of you on here. Yeah, thanks for having us. And it's so, I mean, what a great opportunity to talk about Amazons and all the things that Meg and I really focus on. I think that, you know, we we worked on Xena. That was a very important story that we wanted to tell in the form of musical theater that we felt like hadn't been done before. And I think that's also really our specific genre we found this niche of restorative narrative storytelling for the characters in Xena but it's expanding to other historical figures and we seem to really settle on warrior women (laughs) is is the theme so yeah very much looking forward to diving in with you today yeah So this episode is going to be a concept-focused episode. We're going to be going through first talking a little bit about, or a lot a bit about, because we've got a lot of cool information about Amazons as we see them in Greek myth. And then we're going to peel back the layers of myth into reality and look at the real-life basis for these. As usual, we'll end the podcast with how gay were they, our personal ranking about how likely it is that they weren't straight. And in terms of any content warnings for this episode, there will be brief mentions of rape and sexual violence, as is unfortunately common in Greek myth. So if you want to avoid those bits, we will put the time codes in our show notes. So let's dive in. Y'all ready to boogie and ride off into the sunset into the Amazon lands? Hit it! Always. The first thing that we kind of wanted to bring up is just like the tiniest amount of social context around Greek society because it's useful for how we examine the way that Amazons were treated in Greek mythology and society. We talked a little bit about this in our episodes on Sappho. The one thing that I want everybody to think about as we're talking about all of this is that Greek society was extremely gender divided in social structures that you had men and women in very, very separate spheres. Women were very relegated to the domestic world, as we saw, you know, when we were talking about kind of how revolutionary Sappho and Lesbos were with the idea of, you know, kind of having a 
egalitarian relationships. And with that, that's kind of how we get the idea of Amazons being thought of as kind of a creation of like the anxieties of Greek men and not knowing what to do with the idea of women who have their own agency and equality with the men in their society. So that's really kind of all we wanted to put in as like a bit of context because we're going to be, you know, dealing with a whole bunch of things. But I think that's that's the number one thing to kind of think about and keep at the top of your mind. Yeah, it's really wild. Anytime you are obviously looking backward into history, the initial steps in order to transpose yourself to thinking in that time period is always so wild and is like a basic understanding of you know where you are so I really appreciate you putting that disclaimer yeah. in there of let us let us go back <laughs> all together to a different culture completely in a time right. of ancient gods yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you were going to go into it, you know, in detail, kind of when we talk about like the real life basis for Amazons. I always I struggle with like classics because it's all so big to me and it's it's really hard to figure out, okay, when and where exactly is this? And And so Greek to you. It's all Greek. Ah, it's all Greek. <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> but it's not. It. But it's not with this episode too. Like so, one one of the big things we're going to be talking about is a fantastic book by Adrian Meyer called The Amazons, which is kind of you know one of the biggest sources that we have, and she does a very deep dive, what four hundred something page book mm-hmm. that examines Amazons in myth and in real life, and it's one of the things that really kind of put the ancient world in Europe, in Eurasia, kind of in context for me a lot because it's all so mixed up when you just try to like piece things together, I feel like. Let's dive in. We'll start with just a quote from an interview with Adrian Mayer that said, They were huntresses, founders of cities, rivals and lovers of adventurous men. They battled the Greek hero Heracles and fought alongside the Trojans in the final hours of Troy and yet they are widely held to be little more than figments of Greco-Roman imagination. So while the actual Amazons written about in Greek literature and shown on vase paintings were largely fictional, we have these real women that all of these stories were based on ancient Greeks' experiences and encounters with nomadic horse peoples on the Eurasian steppes, widely known as Scythians. But let's start by kind of looking at what Greek perceptions of Amazons were like in the literature and stories. Or Scythians, if you're a Xena watcher. All <laughs> yes. Of, all of you out there, we know how it's actually pronounced. <laughs> God, I'm, yeah, that's, I'm trying to think of that. Like, when did they actually mention Scythians? The, in Sickness and in Hell, I think, wasn't it? Where the Scythians were trying to capture Argo. Yeah, which is funny because it makes way more sense for Xena to have been Scythian. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just had to throw that out there for you. (laughs) Speaking of Xena, the key phrase that sticks out to me is nomadic horse peoples. I really like that phrase, horse peoples, because you don't really know what we're talking about at first. It's not like a centaur situation. (laughs) (laughs) It's peoples who are nomads on horses. So I just wanted to make that very clear for people who were maybe confused about that. Amazons weren't half horse. I just want (laughs) everyone to understand that. But depicted in Greek myth and folklore as a foreign all-women society. So we're talking about Amazons on horses of 
barbarian, in quotes, aka the Greeks term for anyone non-Greek, barbarian warriors and hunters on the fringe of the known world, essentially thought of as the reverse of Greek male society. So, Lee, like you said before, what if there were super powerful women that we could be afraid of and also turned on by? Oh, wait, we're actually talking about people that do exist and they travel here and we're scared of them. What is that? What does that mean? Like, mark me down as scared and horny. (laughs) Exactly. That's basically like Greek male writers encountering Amazons. Yeah. And then it's like, what would you like to paint on a vase today? Mm, probably an Amazon. <laughs> Real quick, if you type in the Black Sea, by the way, which is sort of the area we're talking about, if you type that into Google Maps, I didn't remember where the Black Sea was, even though I took geography in college. So I love this glimpse into your research. Uh, Thanks so much. <laughs> into, your, into your research style. I learned a lot, personally. I'm not a historian, so I learned a ton. The Black Sea is the big body of water above Turkey, below the Ukraine, to the left of Russia, to the right of Bulgaria and Romania. Okay? I can see it. I can see it in my mind's eye. Fun fact, it does not actually touch Greece, but Greece is very close. So everything around the Black Sea was colonized by Greece at the time. And that's Mm -hmm. the main takeaway, too. Yeah. So Amazon's not Greek. Important distinction. Yes. Decidedly not Greek. One of the first references to Amazons was in the Iliad, and it was quoted as the equals of men. That's what the Amazons were. Brave and beautiful, also armed and dangerous. We've got the vibe. As you mentioned, Meg, the earliest references to Amazons in Greek literature are in the Iliad, my Homer, and stories were known by the time it was written around 700 BCE. And Herodotus, we all know him as the father of history, wrote about the Amazons in many of his histories and his writings probably contain the most accurate depictions and reflections of the people the Greeks would have considered to be Amazons. Also, the Greek playwright Aeschylus in the 5th century BCE called Amazons maidens fearless in battle. So we're definitely getting this image of them being absolutely terrifying, specifically on the battlefield. They were not only written about by Greeks, but also other cultures that knew the Scythian nomads. So Egypt, Persia, Caucasia, Central Asia, India, and China. And Plato was validated by encountering the Scythian nomadic women firmly believing a successful democracy required the same instruction to girls as to boys. Maybe we want to talk about that a little bit as far as that kind of equal instruction. Yeah. From the research that I did, Plato had already been philosophizing as he does about, you know, it would be the best for a democratic society, for a well-functioning, equanimical, (laughs) equal, (laughs) (laughs) equanimous. So what Plato thought would be best for an equal democratic society would be To really treat boys and girls the same. So he was already aware through just thinking about it and witnessing Greek life that there was a big imbalance and he didn't think that that was a great idea. But then the Scythian nomadic horse peoples who were women came along and he was like, yeah, look at this. This is what I'm talking about. This is great. And it's clearly helping these people. I can't tell if I love you or am cursing you, Meg, because now every time you say horse peoples, (laughs) I... I'm going to get a vision of Janet from The Good Place in my head saying, like, not a girl, not a robot, but (laughs) not a horse, not a centaur. (laughs) She's an Amazon. Yes. (laughs) Hello, I'm an Amazon. Not a horse, not a centaur. (laughs) That's beautiful. 
beautiful. Perfect. Yep. There were also lots of similar stories of Amazons and women warriors in what are termed the Nart sagas, which is basically Scythian oral traditions of the Caucasus. Basically, you know, everything was done through oral traditions. And one quote would say, the women of that time could cut out an enemy's heart, yet they also comforted their men and harbored great love in their hearts. Most of the depictions that we get of Amazons are either written by some of the folks that Luce was mentioning, but also a whole bunch of different artistic depictions on vases or vases, however you want to say it. We're going to talk about kind of the way that they were depicted. So some of the myths that we get, and when I say myths, I mean things that are not based in reality, not like the classic Greek myth and the big capital M word. You mean like like Mythbusters. Yeah, gay Mythbusters. That's who we are. Bust (laughs) it! So, you know, the traditional kind of view of Amazons that we all get is like men were barred from their communities. Amazons would seek men out only for breeding. Male babies would be killed and mutilated and only the daughters are raised as Amazons. Being on the beach, is this the uh, mating ritual on the beach that I've oh, yeah, heard yeah. about? You, did you get that memo? I did, where, you know, Amazons meet male warriors once a year on a beach. It's kind of like a mating yeah, yeah, it's like, no, that's sirens, guys. Different. <laughs> yeah, didn't they like lure men to their deaths also from the beach? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you could consider the middle of the ocean the beach. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I guess I ima- I might have imagined a beach for this mating ritual. I'm no, really I feel sure like why. I feel like it's because of Wonder Woman. Is it? I'm not sure. Sorry, what you were saying is that yeah, I've heard this is the this is the myth that I've heard of through you know various completely unreliable sources that is like the main ritual happens if a child is born it, if it's a female they're raised by the amazons if it's a male they're either killed or made subservient or sent back to their the tribe in which they were from which they were begotten which is such a male projection isn't it to be right. like oh well if i was that fucking fierce in a woman this is what i would do you know, I would right. try to control everything and make everybody like me. I would try to control whatever is yeah. considered the opposite gender. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah well, I would make them subservient to me, which was not the case. Like It's so different from the Greek encounters of like Greek women, right? Women in Athens are basically stuck in the home. So the idea that like Scythians could live in a society of egalitarian relationships between men and women was like so unheard of, so foreign and unthinkable yeah. that it's like, Easier to think of, ah, well, these warrior women must come from a society of all women, a a gynocracy. Um, (laughs) Word is amazing. It's so good. It's a really great word. Yeah, I really like the the quote that uh, Adrienne Mayer has in her book is, Some pictured a tribe of man-hating virgins or domineering women who enslaved weak men and mutilated baby boys, a vision that led to speculations on how Amazon society reproduced, hence, like, elaborate mating rituals, Mm -hmm. instead of, like, okay, but maybe, like, they just said, Hey, you're a human being who can fit on the back of a horse. Why don't you do these things, too? Which is basically what, you know, has led a lot of scholars over the years to, like, assume that Amazons were purely beings of myth. Which is where we get, you know, studies like Adrian Mayer's being like, actually, a woman going, well, actually, love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> the Amazons that we see in Greek literature are pretty much always defeated by men that they encounter. We have these kind of interactions with, like, 
Greek heroes, but they're still portrayed as like exceptionally powerful, basically worthy adversaries. Mayer writes again, a short, splendid life and violent death in battle was the perfect heroic ideal in myth. So, you know, we would say like, you know, you look at this and you're like, oh, they must not have respected or validated the strength of these warrior women because they all die at the hands of these Greek heroes. But this is what every Greek hero wanted for himself. And so, you know, seeing these women depicted as being in a battle and then heroically dying was like the height of reverence and, you know, really kind of putting importance on that. I think what you're saying is that Greeks had just this idea and this structure for stories that they were like, a hero is like this. And this is what a protagonist does. Mm. And, and mm-hmm. this is what, what they must be like. And we only understand a hero or a character or a story in this certain way. So it has to fit that mold. Right. Which is funny because then, then you get like, you know, Greek heroes dying by... like falling rocks or whatever too and you're like well you wanted it but then hubris got you oh (laughs) hubris always gets you yeah (laughs) and in order to be entertaining you have to do something pretty (laughs) hubrisy otherwise we're not happy so some origins describe the amazons as quote daughters of aries unquote but being descended from god was a pretty common motif in greek literature at the time Wounded Amazons were very popular in sculpture, a lot of pride in beating them, but they were very rarely depicted as begging for mercy. So still a strong position, but it was, there was a lot of pride for the Greeks if they actually wounded an Amazon. So that was like a, a trophy, basically. And it wasn't like, oh, we, we wounded someone who was weak. We wounded someone who was very dangerous and strong. Again, they were very capable adversaries for Greek heroes, not just any Greek, but a hero like Heracles, even though they would get beaten at the end. But it's like, okay, this is a vicious enemy. There was a rumor that they cut off a breast, only one, in order to be able to draw a bow. Who knows? Maybe it was just meant to humiliate the idea of them or what. Mazon, M-A-Z-O-N, so we're getting into the etymology of the word here, was close to the Greek word for breast. So this is the connection. So mazos is the Greek word for breast, M-A-Z-O-S, and A in front of it meant without. So the name Amazon very well could have been because of that rumor. You call it a rumor. (laughs) A scandalous rumor rumor from antiquity. (laughs) TMZ hot stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally not real, by the way. You can absolutely, obviously, we all know that you can be a fantastic archer (laughs) and still have all of your... But can you? Mythbusters! Okay. (laughs) Artists never depicted the whole cutting off the breast thing, so it's based in zero historical evidence and was even refuted in antiquity. The misconception around the name and etymology can be traced back to a single 5th century BCE Greek historian, Hellenicos. Thanks, Hellenicos. Thanks, I mean, buddy. do you also think, though, that it is somehow, you know, figurative or it's supposed to be a metaphorical slander or comment on these women being less than women or something like that? Some oh, like, stupid they, body shaming like they thing? had to trade part of their femininity in order to be fearless and warrior-like? No, I was saying that they were incomplete because there's so much... I'm thinking of in Celtic mythology, having an incomplete body, meaning you're not mm. able to be 
royal or I'm thinking of Dwartha. I'm wondering if that is, that could be some interpretation. Maybe somewhere there's a correlation between, you know, commenting some kind of incompleteness right in their female identity it could also be there's a whole chapter in adrian mayer's book about amazons one breast or two because it's such a big thing we all (laughs) have this idea of like amazons cutting one breast off to you know be able to draw a bow and and ride a bike (laughs) sorry sorry ride ride a horse um uh you actually need you need the difference in the center of gravity yep. to accurately ride a horse. Yep. But it actually Busted. some of it does come down to that. Being able to ride a horse, you know, when we get into these actual Scythian warriors, a lot of the women were wearing basically would bind their breasts in a fashion or wear like a tight fitting kind of like leather vest so that things did not hurt when you're bouncing up and down on a horse. That Mm -hmm. just kind of blew my mind in my research. It's like, oh yeah, no wonder a bunch of Greeks made this idea up because like they may not have actually seen women with breasts, you know, in, in this. But it is interesting that like, yeah, you know, we don't even see that in vase paintings because it was basically this one dude being like i like etymology this word sounds kind of like this word in another language so clearly it must mean this and then it just spread everywhere yeah like a rumor Mm, so like a rumor would (laughs) last thing about talking about the art lots of jewelry pottery and guys help me out freezes yeah, fri- freezes. Okay. Freezes. Yeah. Freezes. It's basically like a it's like a sculpted or painted decoration. If you've ever seen like the Parthenon or you know where it's got like that whole little sculpted mural oh, above the yes, columns. Yes, yes. That's yeah. That's like in the Louvre is. when it's just guys like the entire way around and you just want to curl up and die. <laughs> that's a freeze. I a frise. Yeah. I'm going to have a rosé, not look at the frise. <laughs> Okay, so this word Amazonomachy, okay, means an Amazon battle scene motif. It's a strange word, but it has a word that means there's a bunch of art out there that has Amazons battling, and it's a whole scene, and it's called Amazonomachy. And as uh, one author put it, Amanda Foreman, in a Smithsonian article, sort of like vampires because they were sexy and also dangerous. No. <laughs> so people just loved them in art just loved it so sexy other than heracles amazons were the single most popular subject on greek vase paintings more than 1000 vase paintings depicted amazons very popular hot stuff hot stuff trendy <laughs> i'm gonna take us into some amazon queens now i think yeah. let's talk about some specific queens so adrian mayer notes that in untangling myth from realities and actual histories of Scythian warrior women, in the context of Greek myth history and also non-Greek writings, the women we call Amazons tend to fall into three groups that cover one, real nomadic horsewomen, horse people, the horse people. It's forever changed. It's forever changed (laughs) now. Scythians. Two, Amazon queens in myth. And three, women warriors in non-Greek traditions. So now we're going to look at some of the Amazon queens from myth and then dive into real-life Amazons that Greek historians and writers encountered and observed. So I'm going to start us off with Hippolyta. So Hippolyta was 
the ninth labor of Heracles or Hercules. He was meant to retrieve the golden girdle or what we would call a war belt, I suppose, of Hippolyta, the Amazon queen at the time. And the story starts off as this peaceful negotiation on Themyscira. And they're seeing each other as equals. And I I believe that Heracles' party is kind of all mingling very, very nicely at this cocktail hour that, you know, (laughs) that Hippolyta and her Amazons are hosting. And everything's going really well. And Hippolyta promises to give him the belt, even, to aid him in his labors. So they really have this kind of equal eye-to-eye relationship going on. But then... Hera disguises herself as an Amazon, and she starts rumor. Hear these rumors again. This is all the all the rumors. (laughs) Starts a rumor (laughs) that the Greeks are kidnapping the queen. That's their secret plan. And so the Amazons react, and they grab their weapons, and they're in this big uproar. And Heracles assumes treachery by Hippolyta, and this kicks off this huge battle, and he ends up killing her and retrieving the belt through her death. So this battle is super popular in vase paintings. That's probably because, as we just said, Heracles and Amazons are two of the most popular images to be painting. So this is like the perfect intersection of those two things. And so, yeah, very, very popular. That Hera, what a mean girl. She's the (laughs) Regina She's the Regina George for sure. She is. I mean, her animal is a peacock. I feel like that's very pretentious. Peacocking around. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Preening. Yeah. Preening. She's like, I'm going to be a sexy Amazon today and I'm going to tell everybody that like Heracles is coming. (laughs) Honestly, if I was Hera, I would be pretty pissed off too because you're married to Zeus. Yeah. And like she has justified anger over a lot of things. Yeah. Just nonstop. Constantly. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Meg, you want to talk about Antiope? I really, really do. Antiope is another queen and popular myth. Theseus, the founder and king of Athens, according to myth, apparently he fought Antiope and beat her. And that was a huge deal because she was vicious and a queen, like real good and stuff. In most versions of the myth, Antiope ends up the wife of Theseus, whether by capture or her own free will. So that's a common theme, too. The Greeks love to be like, oh, warrior woman, now you're my wife, because you want it. You want it so bad. And it's like, well, we don't know. That's part of the myth thing. Yeah. Well, and there's so many different versions, depending on who's writing it down, that you, know, right. you kind of have to do a lot of digging. You see, I mean, there's even a whole bunch of different versions of the Hippolyta myth, too. We just, you know, kind of put the most commonly known one in. Right. We don't really know whether it was by capture or her own free will. We don't know. There is a quote from Adrian Mayer, our favorite again, confined to the shuttered existence of Greek wives, never to ride, hunt, and shoot with her companions. Antiope in her wedded life stands in stark contrast to the notorious sexual independence of Amazons. So that is how it was written. Do we know if she was happy? We don't know that. We don't care. <laughs> Theseus's marriage to slash kidnapping of Antiope started war with Amazons and battle for Athens. So that kicked off a lot. You know, like hoes before bros sort of thing, but she didn't do that. And then it's like, uh, <laughs> um, we all like cut our palms open and shook hands and like put blood on our breasts and stuff and like danced around and 
What's your source for that? <laughs> I don't have any source for that. <laughs> I was wondering. Yeah, there was, there was, I mean, you know, we don't have time to go into it, but there's like a huge battle for Athens, like between Athenians and Theseus for the city, you know, against these invading Amazons coming in and trying to, you know, enact revenge for Antiope and that. Yes, I think she she has two sisters, I think. Right. Yeah. The two sisters mm-hmm. that are leading the charge in that. I we don't you we don't have time to go into it, you're right. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes, that's a very interesting revenge plot. I'm gonna go into uh Penthesilea as our nearly final example of famous Amazons. Achilles is the one who fought Penthesilea in the Trojan War. And she sided with the Trojans and is killed by Achilles in battle. They have a one on one, what I imagine to be a very intense you know, like, nobody, don't touch her. Like, I'm. this is on me. Like, it's a very, they square off. And Pausanias, I have a quote from him here. The Amazons of Themyscira fell to Heracles, and the fighting force the Amazons sent against Athens was wiped out. And yet the Amazons still went to Troy and fought there against the whole of Greece. So I guess this is, seems to be a real comment about their battle lust and their focus as far as how intensely they were warriors. While hunting one day, Penthesilea accidentally killed her sister Hippolyta with a spear, causing her grief and leading her to wish for her death. As an Amazon warrior, she desired a noble and honorable death in battle. So she got that. So that's great. <laughs> great. Yeah. So this, job, this is like basically one of the things where, you know, the suggestion is like, okay, why is Penthesilea going to Troy? Why is Penthesilea fighting for Troy? Was there some sort of alliance between the Amazons and the Trojans beforehand? And it's, you know, assumed that Penthesilea was like so consumed with grief for this Mm -hmm. that she embarks on this journey to be able to die a noble death in battle because that's the only way to kind of get honor dying as an Amazon. Yeah. Very elaborate suicide plot. Yeah, no kidding, right? Well, it's a very specific way that she needed to die, I guess. But yeah, it's interesting. They seem kind of to themselves. I mean, do we have any stories of in which they're not encountered or like come upon by outside forces in a story or an outside character? It kind of seems like this is definitely out of place, right? So I can understand why they're coming up with this kind of plot about it. Because I don't think yeah. that... I mean, we don't have any myths that Amazons kind of walk in the scene. <laughs> they're like, hello, yeah. I'm here. Well, you know? it's it's funny because I, I didn't end up putting it in the outline because try as I might, I could not find the source. There was like one article that I read just as like a starting point from like the Mary Sue that, you know, talked a lot about like the Wonder Woman and the Amazons in there and Amazons being based on on the Scythian women from, you know, Adrian Mayer's study. But there was a line that said that Penthesilea was, you know, real quick content warning here. There's one myth that Penthesilea was like cursed to be violently desired aka raped by any man who met her as a woman and so she like put on armor and pretended to and dressed and pretended to be a man and that this was a curse from Aphrodite and I tried so hard to find anything about this I'm like is it in the Apollodorus what's going on I could not find a single source it must be in some sort of lost Greek literature and I really want to know where the hell that person found that because I wanted to include it because it's like oh cool some gender bendy stuff but I think it goes to say that like there might actually be some interesting Amazon 
stories that just never really survived. Right. So. That they're not just guest stars in other people's quests or other right. people other people's stories that they they have a life kind of of right. their own in mythology. Yeah, so the last Amazon that I just want to mention really quickly because she is an Amazon in the Xena musical is a character that we had named Marina. And Marina is based on an Amazon of history that we chose that name because she is known to be a great uniter. Apparently, she united all of these Amazons together to fight. They were 30,000 strong. And just that one little tidbit that we could find out about her character, we decided was perfect for this character that we were writing, which was new and really symbolized like the hope of a new generation and bringing strength and a future to the people through this kind of uniting quality that she has. So yeah, a little bit about Marina. Nice. She's really cool. Both the, you know, both the mythical Amazon and also the character in the musical is really neat. Just, you know, from what y'all have told me and what I've heard in the songs, it's just exciting to get new folks to focus on. Yeah, last person that we're, we wanted to talk about before we get into kind of the real life basis of who are these real women that all of these Greek men are writing about and creating these myth queens is we have basically like the Greek Amazon and I say you know Amazon in quotes Atalanta yeah so one of the great characters in Greek mythology that really doesn't have enough media we think (laughs) is Atalanta and a lot of people don't know about her at all and when I first heard the story from Luce Okay, I heard the whole thing. I was wrapped the entire time. And at the end, I was like, what? We need to write this. This is our next thing. This is it. And I was so excited about it. And I remain excited. So the backstory of this character, she was exposed and abandoned as an infant. The father, who is a king, wanted a son really bad because, of course, um, heir to the throne and all that. So she was deposited into the forest you know, take take her away, take care of it. And then raised by a bear, okay? Raised by a she-bear, nonetheless. That's in the, the myth, is a she-bear specifically. Sent by Artemis. Atalanta's the fastest runner basically ever. Mentored by hunters who came across her in the forest and were like, um, hi, you're really cool and good at stuff. And you were raised by bears and wow, Here's human tools and fire and stuff. She's also the only wrestling heroine in Greek myth and art as well, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. So super interesting story just from the start, right? Very traumatic beginning, very heroic beginning to her quest. But I'm going to talk about a couple of myths that she appears in. So the first major myth that Atalanta really makes an appearance is, is the Caledonian boar hunt. In Caledonia... Meliager, who was the prince there, uh, his land was being completely ravished by this giant boar. It was killing people. It was eating all the crops. It was killing animals. It was this huge problem. And apparently it had been sent by Artemis because they had neglected to sacrifice Artemis, of course. 
And so she was taking revenge by sending this giant beast to ravage their land. Which is what she did to Shakira as well. And I just want to take a moment (laughs) of silence for Shakira. Shakira, Shakira. Thank you. Please continue, Luz. (laughs) Shakira's the boar that stole Shakira's... (laughs) Bag was sent by <laughs> Artemis. That's so ridiculous. It's hilarious. So anyway, Meli Eager calls for all of the greatest heroes to come and take play- take part in this big hunt to slay the wild boar. And the story has it that Atalanta shows up and she's the only woman who is there. And the other hunters do not want to hunt with her. They're all very offended by the fact that she would be included. But her incredible skill and her really amazing running capabilities come to the forefront and she ends up tracking and being the first to draw blood of this wild boar. And it's remarkable. And Meliger really kind of falls in love with her and can't take his eyes off her this entire time. And so she draws first blood with her bow and arrow and Meli Eager is then able to come up to the boar who is now wounded and slay it. And when this happens, they immediately start to skin it. And he takes the tusks and the, the skin of the boar, the hide of the boar, and he turns to Atalanta and gives it to her and says, you know, we never would have done this unless you had drawn first blood. And everyone is very upset that he does this. And his two uncles are there as well, who have been kind of running Caledonia with him. And they all turn on him. He gets very angry and he ends up killing them. It's a very dramatic kind of ending to that. But it's the first time that we really see Atalanta shown as this like amazing hunter, very focused, fast runner, who just is kind of in the thick of it. I think the craziest thing about her story is that imagine what it would be like to be raised in the wild outside of the constructs of society. And I think this is the first time, this first myth is kind of when we begin to think about what that would mean. Like imagine if you're just raised in the forest and then you're introduced to Greek society and suddenly you realize that you're gendered. I mean, that's like insane, right? Mm. And so she's coming up against all of these situations in which she's just trying to assimilate in some kind of a way, like learn what it is to be human with the rest of her people. And all they want to do is tell her that she's female, you know, and like really intensely gender her. And that goes on for the rest of her life, really. I mean, we're going to we're going to get to the the rest of it, but it starts here where I think she's I, I always think about that and how amazing that would be to just be completely hit with that so hard like gendered society as we were talking about greek society so incredibly separate and to have this person who just doesn't understand it at all i mean barely understands the language it doesn't really have a full you know grasp of what is really going on didn't have a name didn't have a name yeah i mean she's named by the hunters that come Mm. into her forest when she's eight and they name her Atalanta, which actually means equal in weight, which is a really fantastic, Ah. fantastic name. And there's a whole backstory about Meliger, which we won't get into, but that's the first time that we see her until her next giant myth, which Meg's going to take. Right. So 
some people may have heard about the golden apples when this first came up. I was like, okay, so what do the apples do? Why? What? <laughs> they make you a god, what obviously. Is, what? Okay, like, are they really <laughs> delicious or like, uh, what? The do Nordic they have? Ambrosia. Oh my God, Nordic Ambrosia. Is it like an iPhone, like rolling in front of you? Like you have to pick it up and look at it. <laughs> but they're just, they're magic. So her father, who is the king, becomes aware of Atalanta's prowess and reputation, reconciles, and offers her a place in his palace because now she's done something that's she's worthy. <laughs> Good Lord, how many of us are trying to prove ourselves about one thing or another to, okay, let, let's leave it behind. <laughs> <laughs> leave it out of here. Okay. Ooh, chip, shoulder, mesh. Chip, should I have done um, a trigger warning? Okay. But yeah, so he offers her a place in his palace with the caveat that she must be married because of course, we love this tale. And she wanted to remain a virgin for Artemis. She was also told, hey, so like, here's the deal. You're mine and you can't, you know, Artemis was like, you can't marry anybody because you're supposed okay. to be a hero and that's it. <laughs> Isn't it, though? We'd love to read into Betrothed that. Betrothed to Super Just hold Artemis. on to that thought for just a bit later, Lee. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Artemis is like, uh, you're the most impressive, coolest human I've ever seen, and you're also kind of like me. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's the literal, like... It's the literal like women loving women trope of like my girlfriend is the moon. Yeah. <laughs> yes. She is. She's Artemis. Literally the moon. Literally my girlfriend is mm. the moon. Yep. Yep. Also Ex that's also that's rough, buddy. Um. Right. And like how is Atalanta, who has a limited grasp of the language, supposed to communicate to her father, the king who she's never met, that she's in love with the moon? How is she supposed to say that? She doesn't know how to communicate that. But she agrees to marry. We're trying to make it a public thing. Why does she agree to do this? Well, because she's probably forced in some sort of way. She agrees to marry only on the condition of a man beating her in a foot race. Anyone who lost would be killed. So by her, we're, yeah, I, yeah. I want to say. She's like, she's like, all right, personally. fine. Here, this is the only way I'll be married is no, if some exactly dude can right. beat me in a foot race, the fastest runner ever. Exactly. And it was sort of a one-up situation where she's arguing. We're imagining. New father. Yeah, yeah we are imagining yeah. this. But it also checks out in Greek myth, I think. So the father's like, okay, you have to marry. She's like, all right, well, if there's a guy who can beat me because nobody fucking can. And then her father's like, well... Guess what? If they don't beat you, we're going to kill him. And she's like, well, guess what? I'll do it my fucking I'm gonna self. I'm going to kill him. <laughs> all right. So um, this goes on for a long time, right? There's all these foot races that happen, like hundreds of men. She's just constantly beating them in these races. She even gives them a head start. They're like 10 or 20 paces ahead of her when they start this race. And she still beats and kills all of them. Then there's this one guy, Hippomenes. He has another name sometimes, but we'll go with Hippomenes. He comes and he falls in love with Atalanta from afar. And he goes and he asks Aphrodite for help because he knows that he's just nothing special and he really can't beat her in a foot race. <laughs> and so Aphrodite gives him golden apples to distract her and says, use these in the race. And they're irresistible, right? So they, they set up on this race and he drops one and she's enchanted but then kind of breaks out of it and then catches up again in the race and then he drops another and then the same thing happens but she catches up again a little further behind and then the third one happens she's enchanted and just at the last minute he beats her in this foot race it's kind of like reverse steroids <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Subtraction steroids. I'm going to let that land. Attraction Think steroids. About it. Yeah, let it land. Let it find some land to land on. <laughs> oh, I found it. <laughs> so uh, these two are married. And then here is where it's interesting because it gets so weird. It gets so weird, but it also it also deviates. Like we have some pretty interesting deviations from whatever happened. And and my interpretation is just that, you know, it was changed to suit whatever the message needed to be at the moment. Mm. And so that's mm-hmm. why we kind of have this complex trail that spreads out into all these different directions. So here's the the, the gist is that they're married. They spend their days as hunting companions, because it turns out that Hippomenes is actually a great match for Atalanta. They're they're perfectly matched. They have all the same interests. They love hunting. They love being out in the forest and in, in the wild. And some accounts even say that they have children, like a son. And she is very fulfilled and happy in their life. Very interesting. However, regardless of what actually happens there, the ending ending of the story, which is pretty much everywhere, is that Hippomenes forgets to honor Aphrodite in thanks for these gifts of golden apples in which he used to marry Atalanta in the first place. And so when they're out hunting in the forest one day, Aphrodite infuses them with this insane lust and they end up having sex in the temple of Zeus in this like sacred place like known to Zeus. And he gets super pissed. And then here's the big finish. (laughs) He turns them into lions. Now, that seems like a really happy ending to me for Atalanta. Whether or not Hippomenes is involved, who even knows? Like, if he's a lion, fine, whatever. You know what I mean? If they're together or not. But I do think it's really interesting that I think the message was probably meant to be something like, you must conform or else be expelled from humanity. The exact same thing as, like, when Jamie Lee Curtis keeps her pants on and then she survives i forget what happens in halloween i thought i had a good thing to say but i didn't i'm yeah, sorry we should take this sh- one i'm sorry you all should have like been here to see <laughs> the look on both mine and Luce's faces when we were like we were like very intently listening like oh yeah meg meg's gonna have a really good point here oh, and yeah, then we I heard am. and then we heard jamie lee curtis and we both of both us like, just nope, were very just confused for a nope. second no nope. nope. <laughs> we, we both were just like where sorry for the quality of this podcasting that's all trying my best i'm having such a fun time i'm trying i am trying to make a point it's like in a horror film the girls that take their pants off and like yeah have premarital sex get killed the horrors get killed yeah exactly i had a point i didn't do a good job at it but it's you know it's like you have to conform sort of thing right i yeah i think that is the message however it's 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 a little bit confusing it seems contradictory to or at least shows kind of a lack of understanding, in my opinion, right? Of what would be a kind of punishment for this person. To me, this is the happiest ending ever, right? Like all she wanted was, I feel like the minute that she left the forest to go figure out what it would be like to be human, she was like, oh no, this is terrible. Like all I'm doing is getting conformity just like shoved down my throat and I just want to be out being a hero, like all of the other heroes, like all of the other male heroes doing whatever they'd like to do that I'm better at. I'm actually better than them. I think that from the beginning, she's kind of like, why did I ever leave? And so, yeah, to me, I'm like... And it's because she was in love with the moon. Yes, it was. It was Artemis. Artemis had a hand in it. 
So we think. We're not trying to say anything by that. Well, we're just trying to foreshadowing our own work, which is completely which I is mean, fictitious. this is a podcast about gay history, and I'm sure that people are wondering, like, okay, why are we talking about all of these people? We're going to get there. But yeah, I mean, there's also the whole, like, some Greek thought that lions could only mate outside mm-hmm. of their, their species. They could only mate with leopards, which makes zero sense and, you know, wasn't even kind of propagated in antiquity but like a lot of like scholars have been like oh well that must be the reason why they were turned into lions yes. is because they would never be able to have sex again and they would be shamed for having had sex in a sacred place to zeus and and all mm-hmm. of that but i really like the interpretation that it's just like well go back to the forest and be awesome yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean and think about just even the imagery of what female lions they do all the hunting you know they're right i think it's very powerful so there's a quote from mayor where she addresses this. That Atalanta was changed into a lioness does drive home a powerful message, though. There was no place in ordinary Greek society for women like Atalanta who loved to chase game, fight men, and wander at will. The myth expresses the powerful mixed emotions that Atalanta's independence and physical vigor aroused among Greek males. Yeah, there you have it. Okay, so this, sorry, this last part here. So relevance in popular culture of her time. I wanted to mention that there's this, it kind of reminds me of the virgin whore complex where there's this real fascination with Atalanta as far as being a Greek figure and an icon. And there's a push and pull that's kind of like adopted and rejected at the same time for what Atalanta means. So there were actually Atalanta days that would happen for young girls coming of age. So they would be turning, you know, 12 or 13, and they would have these young Athenian girls participate in this initiation ritual, and it would be called Arcateia. Yeah, Arcateia? Sure. I'm guessing. You got it. Great. Which is uh, some interpretation of she-bear. And so they would do all these things, like they would pretend to be wild bear cubs and wrestle each other like bears. They would also engage in foot races. So obviously this sounds exactly like they're replicating the wild abandon of what Atalanta represents as this Greek icon of femininity untamed in the wild, right? And she also appears on some perfume bottles and vases which i guess are assumed to be wedding gifts and that of course is kind of like that same thing like wild in the bedroom female prowess whatever but it all kind of comes down to this one thing about it which is that greek writers often characterize these teenage girls as wild animals who desired to lead the unrestrained life of atalanta and that needed to be transformed into the domesticity of marriage okay the this we have this quote here the amazon in them had to die right but then they'll show up on those perfume bottles for married women as gifts so that's kind of all about atalanta very interesting very complex very underrated and figure in history i feel like and really doesn't have a presence that i feel like should be there for a character like this like the only non-male hero in greek history is like pretty intense right right and is not an amazon although we hear a lot about amazon queens who are all bested and it's it's just a very similar through line yeah and it was it's really interesting to see that you had this this woman who kind of exemplified all of these ideals that were really 
arousing and frightening to Greeks that they were seeing in these foreign women, but you also have them in in Atalanta, and that's the whole reason why she's so kind of out of place and and such a big figure is like, but you're not anything like these other Greek women. It's, she's not like the other girls, uh, <laughs> where you can kind of put this like foreign exotic element on the Amazons. Here you have Atalanta doing all of these things in this like Greek sphere. Right, because she is one of their own. That is mm-hmm. the really interesting. This is one of our own, and it really exemplifies it almost like brings the two thoughts together where you realize that there's this connection between if we do not domesticate, if we did not have Greek society that domesticates our women, one of our own, if left to their own devices in the forest, would grow up with this wild femininity. Right. 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 So it's like very, very clear that this is not another race that's outside of us. This is within our own ranks and how important it is to really make sure that we are conforming our women to our society because this is what could happen, right? She would be mm-hmm. coming into the male field, into the realm of hunting and heroing and questing. I think that that's a good place for us to kind of transition into looking into where are all of these Greek writers getting these ideas? Where are they coming up with these mythical women? And I, let's go into kind of these real-life Scythian warrior women in the Eurasian steppes. So we're going to talk a little bit about their society and customs, where we are with like archaeological evidence, and then we're really going to focus on sexuality in both myth and reality and like why are we talking about Amazons on this podcast particularly. Just to start off, a lot of this kind of is focused around the Black Sea. Scythia is kind of a broad and fluid term in antiquity. It stood for an area and cultural zone that had a whole bunch of different nomadic, semi-nomadic tribes and ethnic groups. Goes from like right next to Greece all the way over to, you know, Bulgaria, Turkey, Inner Asia, you know, even like veering a little bit into China, all over this this wide swath of land. And these these people, Scythian people were nomads. Horse people. There's evidence that uh, <laughs> girls and boys received the same instruction in combat out of, obviously, necessity. You know, if you're running across a world, there, there's no room for, okay, now you stay in this home if you don't have a set space to come back to. They wore similar clothing, usually tunics and pants. They traveled in from the east and encountered the Greeks around the Black Sea and have been written about as early as the 9th century BCE. Men and women of all ages traveled, hunted, battled hostile tribes, and defended themselves with basically horses and archery. So that's what they did. They were nomads, both men and women, okay? So it wasn't just women. But I think one of the key things is that they were brought up the same and of all ages. So very egalitarian. Recently discovered that many Scythians were settled and did agriculture, things like that. So it was a smaller group who were nomadic. They know this because they found like elements of millet in their bones. So that was sort of a recent discovery, but I think it's an important thing to note. Horses were definitely revered among these people, almost religiously. They were depicted in their art, and horses were often buried with them, which is really cool. So what is it? A a dog is man's best friend. A horse is Amazon's best friend. Something like that. 
Scythians had similar gods to the Greeks, but fewer. So similar concepts such as Gaia, Zeus, Ares, Poseidon, Aphrodite, Apollo, and all of the areas that they that are their domains, uh, but called different names. Yet the most venerated was Tabiti, equated with Hestia, which is the goddess of fire. So I thought that was really cool that that was one of their most revered, unlike the Greeks. They used intoxicants, both smoking cannabis, hemp type of drugs, drinking fermented mare's milk. Herodotus described them as coming together around a campfire, throwing cannabis plants on the fire and dancing around the smoke, or going inside the tents with hemp smoking equipment to get high. And, you know, if I was traveling and my whole deal, <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of, you know, that question, like, if you could go back to any era in time, what would it be? Like, I'm starting to question what it, what it is. You'd, it you'd might get be fucked this. up with the Scythians. I'd get fucked up with the Scythians for I know, sure. I just like, I'm reading this and I'm like, come on, Herodotus, like, join in the party. Let's go. Totally. Yeah. Like, <laughs> how'd you get all your information? Is this, you know, yeah. were you partying with them? You probably I did. I know. These, these people are so cool. Like, all right, cool. You know, we, we know about Amazons from myth, but did you know in reality that they like smoked a bunch of pot and drank fermented mare's milk and had a bunch of totally tattoos? Like, it's like the OG Oregon Trail, like with, you know, a hundred percent less gangrene, you know, it's like the best. 100% gangrene. Uh, I said 100%, less, right? 100% less. less gangrene. The less gangrene. New, new, ban- new band name. 100% okay. less gangrene. Perfect. Pretty much all of them had sick tattoos. Greeks were fascinated by this because usually only criminals were tattooed in Hellenic society, and they viewed it as a punishment, which we all know. It's not a punishment for all of us. So motifs most common were animals, snakes, deer, horses, etc. Loved horses and geometric designs too. So I feel like that's pretty advanced. Depicted in vases as being tattooed as well as archaeological evidence of tattoos. I have no idea what archaeological evidence of tattoos could possibly be. It, it, it literally really is cool. tattooed. Literally yeah. skin that is tattooed. Oh my yeah, god. Yeah, basically it was like when the when the grapes were first discovered, they had these mummies that had deteriorated in, in such fashion that you couldn't tell anything. But then a bunch of scientists like did infrared imaging and it just revealed that so many of these warriors buried in these graves were just covered head to toe in these tattoos. And also just like really cool designs. Yeah. Like the aesthetic of their art is so fascinating because it's very much like if you look at it it's very it's almost like circular like whatever a stag looks like it's in a crescent shape that kind of denotes movement like it's very dynamic but it's also depicted with these little circles it's very decorative in a way that is it's dynamic and very intricately decorative and in a very strange way to depict an animal it's a very cool specific aesthetic i want one of my own obviously (laughs) i'm gonna flex just a teeny tiny bit i did study a lot of art history in college and i always thought you know they'd try to teach you in art history and design like ah yes the circle as you can see here very round round shapes that's very feminine a line or something standing straight up like the washington monument is very male very phallic but i was thinking about that when you were talking about movement and a sort of cyclical way of expressing it is very feminine Mm. throughout history it is cataloged time and again that 
that's a very feminine symbol. Yeah. So that's a perfect segue actually to what I'm going to talk about next, which is that archaeological evidence. So because the actual tattoo that I was just talking about was found on a female warrior, Adrian Mayer, there were some DNA archaeological corrections of warrior gender remains. So over a thousand discovered remains of these people with weapons, warriors, obviously assumed to be male right off the bat, right? Mm -hmm. Then we have DNA testing. So now we're circling back and looking at all these remains. And about now we have nearly 300 of them have been identified as female. And that number is growing every year as we return to the remains and examine what these warrior tombs were really consisting of, right? So in 2019, Russian researchers discovered a burial containing four female Scythian fighters aged 13 to 40. They were about 2,300 years old. One was buried with her legs bowed like she was riding a horse, two spears at her side. 11 others were discovered in the past decades in the same region with the same funerary rites as men. So again, these weapons, these these active poses in, in crypt. To be fair, human skeletons don't have a penis bone. So I was about to say, fortunately, I don't really know. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but that's uncommon to most mammals, you know, so it really makes it hard to tell just by looking at the bones in remains what we're looking at. Well, and especially when you have like kind of preconceived notions about, you know, gender Absolutely. and gender norms. It's so many of these archaeologists are like looking at the graves, looking at the tombs, looking at the objects in the tombs. And you don't even have to look at the bones to know quote unquote know that it's yes. you know uh it must be it must have been a male warrior of course yeah and this just makes you really think about what since we have dna now and what has uh, the technology we have at our fingertips now it really makes you wonder what kind of work is going to be happening moving forward to reevaluate work that's been done in the past it's, mm-hmm. this is like such a groundbreaking story. So about one third of the Scythian women found were discovered with weapons and combat injuries. That's one third of the Scythian remains that were women, which were found, meaning slashed ribs, fractured skulls, broken arms, very clear battle injuries. So what a crazy turnaround that is. What a discovery. Yeah, it's it's really significant. Um, and it, it reminds me of a lot of, of other things that we've you know talked about on this show before so let's focus a little bit in and and there's so much more to talk about with these these people because literally there's an entire book and and multiple books about them but you know like why are we talking about amazons in the first place like what is so gay about them why are we dedicating an entire episode (laughs) of a queer history podcast to these warrior women why do we think they're gay you know this is one of those episodes where it's like it doesn't stare you in the face once you get into the research of it you know you might be like oh man i was really expecting to hear that they were all lesbians and they all lived in a woman only society and they dated each other and etc etc and you know when faced with the research and the facts it's not that that is what we have in the myth but we did not want to disregard other elements of these stories 
And I think it's really important for us to include the very concept of like gender variance, gender norm variance is queer in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever I think about Atlanta or Amazons or any sort of people or hero who lives outside of society, the word queer has resonance to me with that. And I think that Amazons fit that description perfectly. A common myth or rumor (laughs) is that Amazons are only gay and man-hating lesbians. So of course, this is pejorative. The phrase man-hating lesbians, that is one of the, I hate that phrase. Oh my God. I, of, of course, I hate it just because it's, it just labels so much. But also that Amazons gave up motherhood all just all of it is not true it shows no basis in history graves show adult women buried with babies and children there have been depictions with scythian men which again like we covered all right it's not gay but the takeaway is that they were sexual equals so sexual freedom was commonly written about for these people and i think that that's that's really huge. Their level of sexual equality would have been shocking to the Greeks at the time. Greek women were typically indoors weaving and watching kids and like we talked about Hestia, that sort of thing. We're all familiar with that stereotype. And the Amazons and the Scythian women did not follow that and they did what they wanted. Yeah, so considering that, it's pretty odd that even though queerness was depicted widely through antiquity in Greco-Roman context, there isn't really much as Lee mentioned, if anything, in texts about Amazons and homosexuality and there being any kind of correlation between the two. So the idea of Amazons as lesbians is mostly a modern feminist interpretation. So this was really interesting. We were talking about this before we were recording, where I think there are waves of popular culture, but almost like the modern ideology of the Amazon and how Mm -hmm. it's been kind of changing over time. So I guess we'll talk about that in in pop culture. But it's interesting that the modern feminist interpretation is really just the last of the interpretations because there have been there have been some before that. But Greeks definitely did were not shy about showing same sex relationships in art or literature. We know that for sure. I mean, definitely between men. So it goes to say that if it was prevalent, they probably would have just mentioned it. It doesn't necessarily preclude it from existing. We just may not have written evidence and very little artistic evidence about that. However, it is interesting that it's like overshadowed. It seems overshadowed. Any homosexuality or the, the concept is overshadowed by the immense fear of just the fact that these women existed and they were terrifying. And exactly. It's more of a gender. The gender issue is like way more at the forefront, obviously, for them than the homosexuality issue takes a backseat. Right. I wanted to bring this up because like I was thinking about it and I had a thought that like just because it's not actually like written about or shown in a lot of, you know, shown in these vase paintings, it doesn't necessarily preclude it from existing. And this is an assumption and interpretation from me. It's not based in any sort of specific scholarly uh, study. But I look at this and I kind of think maybe the Greeks purposefully didn't document any of it because they were frequently fascinated with the otherness and the foreignness of Scythians or Amazons. So like maybe it was just something that was not worth noting because it wasn't anything so different from their own society. 
You know, it's like Greek and Latin writers were really focused on like the exceptional and the scandalous and all of these strange things that were so different to Greek society. Where's the scandal in, oh, and also they, you know, had romantic relationships with people of their same gender. That's nothing new to like some Athenian dude. You know, the idea of women having like egalitarian sexual relationships is scary enough on its own. I don't want to like say that quote unquote, there's no evidence and therefore it doesn't exist. We have to look at the like purposeful omissions. And the one thing that we did really want to bring up and even Adrian Mayer brings this up is, you know, we do have one piece of evidence that is really curious is that there is one vase painting and it goes to say that if there's one that has survived... I can't imagine there not being more. We have this one vase painting that depicts kind of a same-sex courtship between Penthesilea and a Thracian huntress named Theriachmi. And it shows Theriachmi, who's, you know, this Thracian woman, offering a rabbit to Penthesilea. Giving somebody a rabbit was kind of considered like a love gift. You know, kind of, if you've ever heard of like apples being given as a marriage proposal in ancient Greek society. So we have this this face painting from about 525, 500 BCE. And the really interesting thing about it is that this rabbit as a love gift was specifically tied into male homosexual love. It is something that you saw Athenian men giving to their beloved. So Mayer has this quote, this scene is a startling reversal of a common male courtship theme in which a suitor presents a, a rabbit as a love token to his beloved. This unique scene is not known from any myth or literary text about Penthesilea. So maybe this painting illustrates a lost story. Even Adrian Mayer is saying here like, hey, we have this one piece of evidence. Just because it doesn't show up in any of these other things, it doesn't necessarily mean it didn't exist. We may not see it as a common motif, but it's still significant. So that was like the most exciting thing of like, yay! All right. You did it. <laughs> we did it. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that doesn't, the, the next thing that I'm going to talk about, and I feel like that is not a very far step away from this, is that many nomadic groups in the area did practice polyamory and free love outside of traditional Hellenic ideas of marriage. And this is described by Xenophon, Herodotus, Strabo, as well as ancient Chinese sources and the Narat sagas, as we previously mentioned. I don't think it's a very far step when you understand society and individuals having sexual freedom and autonomy to then take that next step and understand desire as being also, I'll say, egalitarian, I guess. You said the word of the day! Yay, the word! <laughs> so yeah, all of this, though, is just challenging the heteronormative, patriarchal assumptions of scientists and historians and everyone studying these graves and these mythological figures. It's been, yeah, all of that. So many of these graves from across Scythia were immediately assumed to be graves of men because they contained weapons, so, quote, masculine-coded items, and skeletons bore the markings of war wounds. So we've been through this before. A lot of assumptions were made because of the people who were discovering them and the biases that they had at the time. So I think that's a huge 
thing to think about as well. And the very fact of these graves of women warriors existing defies assumed notions of masculine and feminine roles. And we think that's pretty fucking rad and queer as well. So I very much think that queerness is also destroying notions of heteronormativity and Mm -hmm. patriarchal society and all the great intersectionality that we love. So feminism and queerness and all of that sort of stuff. So thumbs up. It reminded me a lot of we did, you know, this episode on kind of gender in ancient Egypt ages ago. Like it was one of our earliest episodes. And it reminded me a lot of this story of what's known as the dancing woman, which was a coffin that was discovered by archaeologists that when they first looked at the mummy, you know, they thought it was female because it displayed with female presentation and a very specific female symbology on the coffin and in the burial rites. And then they did, they saw also a beard on the coffin and then they did, you know, DNA testing and they decided suddenly that the mummy was male. But, you know, these are people who are very, 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 very specific about their burial rites. They're not going to make quote unquote mistakes about like, oh, burying a male with all of these female signifiers. It's very likely that we had a trans feminine person (laughs) buried and so you know it just it reminds me a lot of that is the idea that we have these graves that were assumed to be one thing because of very specific very limited western binary ideas about gender and then just flipping it over on its head of course and it happens all the time today as well with how many times do we see two male or two female figures buried together or painted in a loving embrace or whatever and it's always like well they were very good friends relaxing together (laughs) they were such great friends possibly sisters like that's kind of always what it is and it (laughs) it can never just be what it probably is right just so interesting as kind of our last little queer aside before we we wrap up We did really want to, like, put in, you know, the really, really heavy-hitting, like, okay, but here's, like, the real queer stuff here, is Scythian society actually had a religious role of trans-feminine and androgynous priests, much like the Sumerian Gala and the Roman Gala, like, Sibel cult that we talked about in the Elagabalus episode, and they were called the Enare, or Enare, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, but while... It's not these specific warrior women that we're talking about that, you know, were the basis for the Amazons. This was a big part of at least like, you know, part of the kind of agrarian elements of uh, Scythian society. The term is derived from the Iranian term uh, anaria, meaning unmanly, essentially. Hippocrates even mentioned them, kind of noted that like only the most powerful and noble men, you know, people who were assumed to be men who got to like go and ride the horses would become NRA. NRA. I'm going to say NRA because I don't want it to sound like NRA. Oh, <laughs> um, suddenly we're God. talking about <laughs> so, uh, cell uh, biology. Penis bones, the NRA. <laughs> it's a wild podcast. Um, he also, you know, Hippocrates also like theorized that they were eunuchs or impotent from all of the horse riding and thus, you know, led to them having kind of female roles. 
they were shamanistic soothsayers and they played a really important political and religious role. They were believed to have received a gift of prophecy from the goddess Artempasa, or, you know, if you're Herodotus writing about them and trying to find like a Greek connection, Aphrodite. They were accepted and revered, and these priests and shamans usually performed really important roles in divination rites with the cannabis. So that, you know, like dancing around the fire, going into those oracle tents. Oracle status. Yeah, or like oracle status, which is what we see so much of in so many different societies and cultures around mm-hmm. the world that, you know, gender diversity equals being closer to gods, which I love. They, you know, wore, quote unquote, women's clothing, performed women's jobs, spoke in a, you know, feminine manner. And I was really surprised to see that Adrian Mayer actually didn't talk about these folks in the book. Because I'm, I'm also really interested to speculate on, like, how many of these people who were out there riding and were, you know, wearing women's clothes, etc., would have would have contributed to these depictions of amazons yeah absolutely i mean that i feel like that for people who are who are interested in gendered interpretation that kind of blows everything up (laughs) so i can you know what i mean yeah in a great way for me i don't know how adrian mayer feels about it i guess is what i'm saying (laughs) so some last things hippocrates wrote that they would play the part of women interpreted as having a passive role in homosexual male intercourse. So that's a very, that's a Grecian understanding of that mm-hmm. phrase. Aristotle used malachia, meaning soft or effeminate. Herodotus used the term androgynos and discusses them in a story of Scythians who pillaged Aphrodite Urania's temple and them and all of their descendants were afflicted with the female sickness. Interesting. Can yeah. you say more about this? this phrase yeah so it was it was called like the the female condition or the female sickness and it was the idea that like you know it was a a curse slash you know affectation that kind Mm -hmm. of was passed down from these people and usually also kind of coincided with them being eunuchs as well and impotent and yeah i just i thought it was interesting to see herodotus talking about them I couldn't find a huge amount about it. It's kind of hard to find some stuff on these folks. There's just not as much written about them as like the Galais. But yeah, archaeologist Timothy Taylor also kind of proposed a theory that they drank pregnant mare urine. Fun. As an ancient form of HRT. Which is, you know, I mean, doesn't seem so off the mark considering we know that Scythians were, you know, drinking fermented mare's milk. And it was also mentioned by Ovid. And apparently they also ate licorice root, which is an anti-androgen. And part of this probably comes from kind of connecting the dots between the fact that pregnant mare's urine is apparently the main source of Premarin, which is the most widely used estrogen drug today, or one of the most widely used estrogen drugs. So, you know, continually surprised and impressed with ancient people's ways of accessing transition resources before, you know, quote unquote, modern medicine. Of course, yeah. You're gonna do what you're gonna do. Well, (laughs) we've talked a whole bunch. Next time, we're going to come back with Megan Luce and talk about sort of more modern 18th, 19th century versions of Amazons. We would be remiss to go through an entire episode talking about Amazons without mentioning some of the most popular 
depictions of them in pop culture. So we wanted to kind of bring in our pop culture tie-in, starting off with one you all may be the most familiar with is Wonder Woman. We get the mythical island of Themyscira, which was actually based on a real island, not actually called Themyscira. We've got, obviously, we have Xena, which, you know, as we've kind of gone through, there's certainly some interesting interpretations of the Amazons that, you know, take bits and pieces from reality and myth and kind of makes their own mythology around them. I wanted to mention one of my favorite movies and queer as all hell that has come out in the last couple of years is The Old Guard, Charlize Theron's character Andromache, or Andy, of Scythia. So here we have this character in, you know, comic, in movie, who is a historical woman warrior of Scythia. And I'm really, really interested to see where that story is gonna go. So, Lucy, you had some some fun stuff that you wanted to mention about Atalanta. So yeah, I one of my favorite pop culture tie-ins for Atalanta specifically would definitely be her depiction in the 2014 film Hercules starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I had Um, no idea that that was (laughs) significant in any way. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I just really like the way that that character is depicted. She's really serious and experienced. She's very, she's a respected member of the inner circle of Hercules team Mm. Also, her attire is refreshingly not sexualized, which I really enjoy. She's just really good at her job. That's kind of how she comes off. She's all all business, but like has a very warm spot for her friends, her very close friends. And she has this really great monologue in the film where she's training some new recruits in the art of the shield wall and the importance of focusing on protecting those around you as your primary responsibility and their life is in your hands and all this stuff. And I have definitely used that like live for others rhetoric as oration inspiration when captaining roller derby, derby teams in the past, you know, nice. however many years. <laughs> it's like been a really great inspiration. I've definitely showed it to teams before. I think it's awesome. But I just have to say that, you know, I, I just mentioned that that was my favorite Atalanta character depiction. But I need to point out that there's actually almost no pop culture references to choose from. I mean, I, I had you had, had you heard of Atalanta? In, I mean, I'm sure you have. But have you heard of Atalanta come up in popular culture? Like, yeah, at all? she's really not not well known. And I, I'm also really forever salty about how dirty they did her. On Hercules, the Legendary Journeys, the mm. show none of us will, you know, will Never talk heard about. Of it. Never heard of it. <laughs> Yeah, like, she's just, no, it's not great. And I'm very sad that we didn't actually get Atalanta in Xena where she belonged. Yeah. 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 So, okay, well, I'm going to do a shameless plug now because I we have together perfectly identified this lacuna. And I'm going to say that you're the first people to know this is happening. So I can't believe you're saying it out loud. Meg, are you ready to say this out loud? No. (laughs) (laughs) But um, Meg and I are actually right now in the middle of our process with writing a new show about this forgotten hero as the lead character. It's called Atalanta, The Long Shot. And 
where are we, Meg? What's happening with it? I'm like looking to we've, you for Well, it. we've whiteboarded the entire thing and we've basically <laughs> taken a lot of those myths that we told you about earlier. And you know that meme with that guy who is like a professor of physics or something and there's like a bunch of weird diagrams behind him and he looks just crazed and he's like the uh, oh, the yeah the red, the red like strings this. yeah 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 that <laughs> yeah, that's definitely charlie from from always sunny in philadelphia <laughs> okay well i never but I saw love that, you that. Think that he's a professor <laughs> i never saw that television <laughs> no show idea what that meme is. i know memes <laughs> as they are at face value oh my god <laughs> so funny <laughs> so Luce, I write musical theater. I don't watch television. I know. <laughs> we don't have time. Um, but yeah, it's sort of like that. So we did a lot of work with the Greek myths that are not strung together. A lot of them are not. It's not like that this happened and then this happened. They do that within the myths a lot, but they don't connect the myths together. Yeah, they well. live in kind of worlds yeah. in which they're all islands that relate to mm. each other. But Yeah. So we got to take Atalanta's myths and try to make them make sense. And as we may have uncovered before, Artemis, the moon... gay (laughs) and that's all i'm gonna say about it (laughs) well and and speaking of spoilers as you mentioned this is the first time anybody outside of you know you two and close friends are hearing about this you are debuting atalanta the long shot as as a concept on the world but you're a little farther along than you you know have have uh have alluded with just whiteboarding you actually have a demo that we're going to debut on this podcast. So if you didn't listen to this episode all the way through to the end, you're missing out. So (laughs) do you want to give a little bit of context to this before we play it? Yeah, of course. So what you're going to hear is the first time that Atalanta sings in a solo. It's her first solo in Act 1. And uh, she's just had a conversation with her friends, the Hunters. It's very early on in the show in which they kind of ask her, don't you ever wonder who she would have been? That Mm. other you, that other you that grew up in Arcadia that was raised by her father, the king. Who knows? You know, they don't know that she's obviously the daughter of a king, but they they wonder what she could have been. Does your, you know, are you, you could have been a a priestess. You could have been this. You could have been that. Don't you ever wonder? And she kind of says, well, I I don't, I don't wonder because I am. I just am. So that's the lead up to this, to this song. And it's her first solo. It's the introduction to her character. And uh, we've really been trying to play with structure of musical theater with the show in general, like in a big picture sense, but also structure within the song, you'll you'll hear that it's very atypical because we wanted the show to follow the lead of its lead and be wildly different, different than anything you'd heard before because Atalanta is just different, humbly, humbly defiantly different. So uh, yeah, that's that's what we got for you here. It's called Another Skin. If I am Atalanta, I wonder who she is. East, 
feel the moon in her wane, hear the wind calling your name, let it in. When you rise in the morning, through the fog you can barely see your feet. Still you run with a grin, left then right you begin. You're complete, moving like them. Does it make you creak? Oh. I can feel it everywhere I can feel it in the air all around me all around me why this Just because you're not a bear, you're a man. Will I change if I go with them? Will I fail at being human after all? Will I claim the life I've lost or will I fall? There's a magic in the night time. See the stars as they fall across the dark. Do I care what might have been? Another life, another skin. Same heart, same heart. They don't know all the ways I'm different.
was really wonderful and I'm really grateful to both of you for sharing this piece of work especially at you know such an early point in its creation and I'm sure everybody will be really uh, excited to hear more things we've got to move to our how gay were they and kind of close out this episode. So I don't know if you two have listened to the episodes before, but we close out all of the episodes on History is Gay with a fun little segment called How Gay Were They? where we rate the queerness or gayness of our subjects on a totally not arbitrary scale. And I lovingly like to haze all of the people who come onto this podcast for the first time by making them go first. So if you were to rate the Amazons of Greek myth and the real-life Scythian warrior women on a scale of however many numbers you would like <laughs> of gayness, oh, what no. would it be? Well, I would have to say three out of eight hot dogs. Hot dogs. Yes. Please, please elaborate why hot dogs. I, that's what I thought of first. It's, it's that It's simple. 11.30 at night. <laughs> <laughs> and Meg is is just craving hot dogs. Yep. All right. Cool. Uh, and you said it was three out of a three out of eleven. Three out of eight. Three out of eight. All right. Sorry. Why why the three out of eight? <laughs> well, I'm gonna say the three is because I think we can infer a lot of gay behavior. Definitely queer. You know, the sexual freedom and all of that sort of thing, and being non stereotypically feminine. In terms of society is what I'm saying. Right. It, it even sounds weird coming out of my mouth because I have, you know, embraced my own queerness so much that I don't think of those stereotypes anymore for myself. So it even seems weird for me to say, oh, it's not feminine. Wait a second. Mm. You know, so it seems to me like, why do we say that's not stereotypically feminine? Can't we can't we say that it was? We just discovered that all of those things being being a warrior and being a traveler, it can also be feminine, quite feminine. Anyway, not what we traditionally see as that. So they get the three hot dogs for being queer. Definitely. But there's just there's not enough evidence to sneak it across the 50 percent mark for me. Mm. <laughs> nice. I feel like I feel like there's something that could be said about hot dogs being like a mishmash of different meats and different things pulled together from different animals and Gross, the myths of <laughs> the myths of Amazons and what we have to parse from reality or pulled together from different pieces of etc etc etc. So wow. there you go. There's your connection. There's your Thanks hot for making that There's your hot dog link. <laughs> ah. Ah, <laughs> link. <laughs> All right, what about you, Liz? Gross. Yeah. Um, I I think I'm actually going to give them a five and a half out of eight tofu dogs. All right. Nice. You were nice. really turned off by the hot dog metaphor. Oh, yeah. Meg knows, knows it for sure. Yeah, I, I just feel like I think queerness is a slippery slope is how I feel about it. And... I there's something very powerful about what daily life experience is like and what it does to human beings. And so I really I I know that we don't have a lot of evidence to suggest specifically gay behavior. However, they I feel like these historical figures were open in a way that we are still struggling with in our society in contemporary 
time. Mm -hmm. And I, right. And so I really think that once you're open in that way and you live in a culture that's deeply embedded in egalitarian freedoms and basic human needs like sexuality, I really think that it's not a far cry from whatever queerness is translating into whatever gayness is in that culture so yeah i i I, I want to revise my because you went yes i can revise (laughs) i can revise i was courageous enough to go first and then you stole you stole my thing about the hot dogs you made a tofu dog that's what you did so i get to go again (laughs) imagine these two working together Constantly, oh yeah. All the time. I mean, we've really toned it down, I feel like, for this. We tried our best. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. I Because I was inspired by your answer. I was so inspired by your answer that I feel like I need to revise. I am going to say five and a half as well. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm not kidding. I just want to agree See, we so all much. know who's in charge here in this oh creative relationship. God. Um, Clearly. Uh, okay, so, but the, I was inspired because... I'm getting flashbacks because... to a day in the life right now. <laughs> I, I let you, ins- you got this close because I let so you get like, this close. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, so the reason I wanted to bring that up is because I think they're... It's just not all about sex. That's all I'm trying to say. And I think that we forget that a lot of times. Um, not just the straight people, which is infuriating. It's not just about sex. It's it's a lot more than that. It's a lifestyle and it's in resistance to a lot of the status quo. That is what queerness is and needs to be. And even within, you know, I'm not trying to like, I don't I'm not trying to judge people necessarily. But where is this going oh it's going somewhere <laughs> it's going somewhere where are we going who knows if it's going to be on here but there are people who have same-sex relationships who exist very much within the status quo and i'm not trying to be judgy here but if we were to rate them on how gay are they hmm. the rating could be different right that's all i'm saying yep. it's not just about sex i agree with you and i'm sorry that i didn't see it until Don't you have said to it apologize <laughs> Or do you? (laughs) Well, let's see. If I were, if I were to, um, I feel like I have to look at the, you know, the Amazons of myth and Scythian warrior women kind of separately. I would say, you know, Amazons of myth as like, as much as I get like big gay feels about it and how, you know, gay all of them are for Artemis, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put it around the, on, you know, around like five, five or six. Uh, let's, let's, let's go with horse people, not centaurs. Uh, so five, five to six horse people, not centaurs. Um, for the, uh, for the sole reason that Scythian society had a bunch of badass trans feminine shamanesses who were running around or rather riding around this the steps and you know with a whole bunch of other women who were you know saying fuck you to every single you know norm that conventionally western societies would have have imposed upon them i'm gonna give it eight out of ten uh, circular stag tattoos. How about that? Oh, whoa. There you go. Oh, there we full go. Circle. Yeah, full circle. Full circle. Oh, yeah. I want to see that you know, rating system for enough, everything. There's enough ambiguity there that 
you know, we really only have a couple of pieces of quote unquote evidence, but I think it, what we do have is significant. And you're right. Like looking at this in the context of, I mean, we, you know, we look at bi people, we look at heteromantic asexual people. We look at people who, you know, aren't in a necessarily explicitly like same gender relationship. And if you're not, you know, the shitty part of the queer community, you still look at them and you go, hey, you're pretty fucking queer. And I think it would be really reductionist to like look at the history of Amazons and be like, oh man, but there were men in their society. And that means that they aren't as gay as I hoped they would be, which, you know, is a, is a fair kind of knee jerk reaction to have. But one doesn't preclude the other. Both can exist. Yes, absolutely. You never know that you have no idea about the queerness of anyone else's relationship. Right. No matter how it looks on the outside. So. Right. Well, that is it for today's episode. I am so happy that I got to hang around and giggle and talk about a whole host of different topics with you both. This episode has gone in so many different directions from the the place that we started. You would all not believe how many different iterations of this outline we went through. And it turned out that we're bringing you to episodes that are linked. So before we go away, I would really love to let our listeners know where they can find more about each of you and your work. Yeah, so you can find us at lucierose.com. You can find us at xenawarriormusical.com. We have an Instagram, xenawarriormusical. We're on Facebook, xenawarriormusical as well. So the whole like Facebook slash twitter is at xena musical and we love it send us whatever tag us in whatever we love it and youtube check us out on youtube YouTube. you can hear some songs from the album our album is on Bandcamp. we have a full album with i don't even know how many demos like 20 something there's a lot there's a lot so if you're interested head over to Bandcamp. search uh xena we're a musical or you can just find it from our website or anywhere else. And you can listen to a couple of the songs on YouTube as a little preview. So, yeah. Yeah, Thank we're going to put all those links down into the show notes description below. So check all of these out on uh, wherever you are listening to your podcasts. And as ever, I am Lee. And when I'm not nerding out about old-timey queer folks, I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter and crying about Xena episodes with my friends on my podcast because this is my podcast and I can do whatever I want, include (laughs) make anything connected to Xena I want. Um, This is my justification. Yeah. (laughs) History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast, Twitter at History is Gay Pod. You can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History is Gay Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can support us on Patreon, where you can get access to Sappho Salon minisodes, special sneak peeks, the opportunity to have your voice show up in the show, and more. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website and join the ranks of our amazing Patreon community, along with Brandon Richter and the Galaxy Panda. Thank you all so much for your support. And, you know, I've just really, really appreciated everybody supporting the show through the years, even through various unexpected hiatuses, because life is weird. So I, I thank you all really a whole bunch for your patronage and your loyalty, and I love you all. You can always buy uh, our awesome merch at our History is Gay store. You can click, click on shop on the website. 
And lastly, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show and our lovely guests, and it allows us to expand this awesome community. Meg and Luce, would you like to help me close out the show? Love to. All right. Uh, you willing and able to help in the exit room in case of an emergency? Yes! Yes! <laughs> All right. That's it for History is Gay. Until next time. Stay queer. And stay curious.